0: Good morning. This morning I'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 to 25. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power, known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is the word of God. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank
1: you, Dan. Uh, If you're just visiting or joining with us today, uh, we are in the 12th week of a series called The Christ Revolution, How the Gospel Changed the World and Can Do It Again. And we've been going through the entire book of Acts in the New Testament. And our passage today picks up right where we left off last week. So last week, uh, we saw a fairly intense passage. We saw the first martyr of the church, Stephen, uh, die on account of his faith. And up until that point in Acts, we've seen incredible growth, an incredible movement of God uh, breaking loose as people come to Jesus in greater and greater numbers. And as that's been happening, there's been greater and greater opposition to the new church that's, that's being grown. Uh, And that opposition reaches a whole new level of intensity last week uh, with the death of Stephen. But the action this week doesn't slow down for a second. In fact, it only sort of picks up and gathers steam. This passage that Dan just read to us uh, has a lot of action in it, a lot of characters, and covers a lot of geography. There's a lot going on. Uh, So if you look at your notes, in order to just kind of organize our thoughts through this passage, uh, you'll see there's kind of three major headings I'll I'll go through. Three significant, particularly significant things that happen in this passage. One, the gospel goes forward. Two, the gospel breaks down barriers. And three, the gospel is clarified. So we'll just go through those sort of one by one uh, to make our way through all the things that happen in this passage. So first, the gospel goes forward. Uh, This is a The passage today is a significant passage in the whole overall narrative of Acts. The gospel actually takes a quantum leap forward. Uh, This is a very significant moment in the whole narrative of the book of Acts. Now, ironically, the gospel goes forward here despite the fact that chapter 8 begins with a furious persecution and attempt to wipe out the church altogether. Opposition is a, a theme that we've seen in Acts, and here the opposition is more widespread than ever. The powers that be aren't satisfied just with destroying Stephen, as they did in last week's passage. They're intent on destroying the entire church, the entire Jesus movement. Verse 1 says, A great persecution broke out against the church, and all except the apostles were scattered. Up until this point, the apostles themselves have been the target of opposition and persecution, uh, but it hasn't really worked. It's only served to fuel the spread of the gospel even more. So here, they try a different tack. And it's ordinary believers who are targeted and opposed for the first time. We see Saul going house to house, dragging off men and women to put them in prison in an attempt to destroy the church. So now every believer is a target. Nobody is safe, and it seems like it's no longer safe for them to be there. This is an outright, no-holds-barred assault on the early church. But in the face of opposition that's now widespread, In Acts 8, we see the gospel now spread wide, wider than it's ever been spread to this point. In the face of widespread opposition, the gospel spreads wide. The church takes a huge leap forward in this passage. In trying to destroy the church, Saul and the opposition end up propelling the church further into the mission that it was called to do in the first place. So if you look back, I think it'll be on the screen. Uh, If you remember in Acts chapter one, verse eight, this is kind of a, a summary statement of the entire book of Acts. Jesus says to his followers, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's kind of the thesis statement of the whole book of Acts. It's not so much a strategy or a plan as it is Jesus declaring what is to be, what is to happen. The gospel will go from Jerusalem out to Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see that get propelled forward here in our passage this morning. The gospel was always intended to go from Jerusalem outward to these other places, but up until this point in the book of Acts, everything has happened in Jerusalem. We seem to have hit a bit of a stall here. There's some sort of inertia, you could say, in the Jerusalem church that God has to break them out of so they can get on to Judea and Samaria. Inertia is a powerful force in the universe. It's in Newton's first law, if you remember from school. Uh, an object at rest will stay at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. Inertia is a powerful force in the universe, and it's a powerful force in people. It can be a powerful force in churches as well. We often want to just stay right where we are. It's easier to stick, there's a natural human propensity to stick with what's comfortable, to stick with whom we're comfortable, to avoid risk, uh, and perhaps to focus inward on ourselves. And it becomes easy once we have a lot of people around to feel like it's all we can do to just manage what we have. Perhaps that was hap- some of that was happening for the Jerusalem church, It had grown very quickly from something very small to something actually pretty significant and large. They may have felt like, oh, there was a lot of effort just to deal with everyone who was there already. Our little journey community church in Worcester started a few years ago as something very small. And by this point, this church is actually kind of a something. And there's a few, you know, there's a good amount of people in here. And, And honestly, at this point, I'm sure that among all of us in this room, we could easily find All sorts of issues and drama to keep us occupied for a very long time and and be the sole focus of our attention and energy. But God is not content to let churches stay inert. He's not content to let inertia rule the day and for churches to just stay where they are. He was not content to let the church stay in Jerusalem. His heart was for all people. He breaks them out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And his heart is for more of Worcester than what's represented here in this room. What will it take for him to break us of inertia? Because let's be honest, inertia as we grow will be a powerful temptation, it will be a powerful force. We might as well just be honest about that. We'd be in good company, really. So if the early church, under the leadership of the apostles, dealt with inertia, I mean, who are we to think that we're immune to that sort of thing, that we're above that? For the early church, it took something pretty dramatic in this uh, this case, some very intense persecution to break them out of Jerusalem. The way this happens, it's not planned. It's not like the apostles looked at Jesus' mission statement and and kind of thought, okay, let's have a planning meeting. How are we gonna get to Judea and Samaria? Okay, you go over here, and Philip, you go to this town, and you go to this town over here. This this doesn't come out of a planning meeting. This comes out of some intense persecution and, and is really kind of a chaotic scene that propels the church forward. But in the chaos, in the scattering of the believers, we see God's sovereign hand at work to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. It's not that persecution in itself is a good thing. It's not like people were sitting around celebrating, oh good, Stephen died, now we can, you know, that'll propel the church forward. It says people mourned deeply for Stephen. This was a very sad thing. His death was a sad thing. It was a violent thing. It was a terrible thing. But, we see God's sovereign hand able to take even the darkest of circumstances and ultimately use them for something wonderful and beautiful. God's sovereignty in this situation doesn't mean that he prevents Saul and the others from doing terrible things. What it means is that he takes even the most terrible of their actions and makes them the very thing that propels the gospel forward. The movie Pearl Harbor, there's a great line. Uh, after the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese have, have attacked and caused all kinds of death and destruction at Pearl Harbor. And uh, and Japanese admiral, after all that, says this thing. He says, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant. I fear all we have done in all this death and destruction is to awaken a sleeping giant. And history proves that that actually was kind of true. And Saul could say the same thing here. In all of his violence, and all of his angst, uh, all he's really doing is awaking, awakening a sleeping giant. All this destruction being unleashed on the church is awakening uh, ordinary believers and propelling them into mission. When the apostles were the objects of persecution, it emboldened them to proclaim the gospel more. And the same thing happens here when ordinary believers are targeted. They start proclaiming the gospel Verse 4 is kind of a summary statement of what happens. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. We zoom in on Philip later and see what he does, but you get the sense here this is happening all over the place. There are a lot of people who have been scattered and are preaching the gospel in various places. This persecution turns out to be almost like the commissioning of a whole new army of evangelists, taking the gospel to new places and new people, We see believers in this passage making the profound shift from gospel consumers to gospel proclaimers. And that is a profound shift. You could argue that the shift of believers going from gospel consumers to gospel proclaimers may actually be one of the most powerful forces for overcoming inertia in the church. While they were in Jerusalem, it could have been easy for them to just kind of let the apostles do everything, to rely on their leadership. They were incredibly gifted leaders, the apostles. But now the ordinary believers are forced to step out into the gifts that God is giving them. One of the most common contributors to inertia in churches is a a propensity that can happen to rely on the professionals, to rely on the clergy or the experts, the, the formal leaders to do the ministry while the average believer is reduced to a spectator or a consumer, But being a spectator or consumer was never God's intent for any believer. He has much more for us than that. And the church is always at its most vibrant when it's not just the clergy or the professionals ministering to everyone else, but when every believer takes it their place and and steps out in his or her gifts to actively contribute to the ministry of the church. The more that happens, the less there is inertia and the more the gospel goes forward. As we see here, the gospel goes forward in a major way. This is a quantum leap forward for the gospel to go from Jerusalem to Samaria, which leads to our, our second major theme in this passage. The gospel breaks down barriers. And going from Jerusalem to Samaria, the gospel crosses its first major boundary and cultural line in the book of Acts. Up until now, there's been some diversity in the early church. We saw in chapter 6, there are some Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews, people of a Hebrew background, a Greek background. Uh, So there was some diversity there and some tension between them that had to be resolved in chapter 6. But both those Hebrews and those Hellenists, they did have a lot in common. They were both committed to that point, uh, to the Jewish law. They were practicing Jews. They worshipped in the Jewish temple before they received the gospel. Uh, and they, they had no real long-standing history of, of animosity and hatred towards one another. But this is a whole different story. Jews and Samaritans. I won't tell you a really long background, but just to say there was deep animosity between these two groups of people. And it went back for centuries and generations. Samaritans had some Jewish ancestry in their family line, but they had intermarried with other nations and adopted a lot of the, the practices of, of other nations around them. And then the, the kind of purebred Jews really resented them for that. And then the Samaritans went and uh, set up their own temple. They refused to worship at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, but they went and set up their own as an alternative place of worship, kind of a defiant act to sort of stick it to the Jews in Jerusalem. Each group, Samaritans and Jews, had deep contempt for one another, hatred for one another. And they weren't far away, they were actually next door neighbors, but they went out of their way to avoid contact with one another. They did whatever they could to not have, to have anything to do with each other, except for maybe the occasional skirmish or outbreak, outbreak of violence. There's a deep divide here, culturally, religiously, personally. But Philip goes to Samaria and proclaims the gospel. He proclaims the good news of the kingdom and of Jesus Christ. And the Samaritans respond. They believe, they're baptized, and it says there is great joy in that city. This is a huge deal. And you can tell it's a huge deal because in verse 14, when the church leaders in Jerusalem hear, Samaritans have accepted the word of God. They send Peter and John you know, the two most prominent leaders in the whole church are, are sent on a mission to Samaria. This is obviously something major uh, that they want to address. And it's important to note here that Peter and John, they don't go to Samaria be, because Philip did something wrong and they have to fix it or shut it down or correct it. They go to Samaria because Philip did something right and they go to bless it. Peter and John go to bless this movement in Samaria. It's possible there were people in Jerusalem. In fact, it's likely there are people in Jerusalem who heard about Samaritans coming to Christ and they were very suspicious of that, maybe uncomfortable with the idea. But from what Luke tells us, Peter and John went with nothing but blessing for this new community. And this is a major, I don't know, it's almost a minor miracle. Peter and John would not have gone to Samaria at all a few years ago They were just like any other Jews who thought Samaritans were detestable and to be avoided at all costs. But if we look back into the Gospels, Jesus had actually done several things to prepare them for this very moment. We'll look at a couple uh, examples of this. Uh, But During his ministry on earth, Jesus deliberately went to Samaria took his disciples with him, including Peter and John. They were prepared for this. So here's one example. This is in Luke chapter 9. Verses 54 to 55, uh, Jesus and his followers had gone into Samaria and uh, people in a Samaritan village refused to welcome them, which was typical of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. And when the disciples James and John, our same John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Also kind of a typical response, maybe not fire, but John maybe thought, hey, we've got some extra power at our disposal with, with Jesus here They may fulfill a lifelong fantasy of wiping out some Samaritans with fire. But just the anger and the animosity and the prejudice here was, was typical of the Jewish-Samaritan relationship. But it says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. Jesus challenged their prejudice and began to transform their hearts towards Samaritans. And John chapter 4 is another example of this. This is a fairly well-known passage where Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus says this in Samaria. This takes place in Samaria. Jesus had been reaching out to a Samaritan woman, and the disciples really didn't know what to do with that. They just never imagined that Samaritans could know God in the same way that they did. But Jesus is opening, to their eyes to the, opening their eyes to the fact that God, in fact, is active and present in Samaria, that he loves and has a heart for Samaritans and wants them to know him too. He's transforming their hearts and preparing them for this moment. They've been prepared to, for this. And so Peter and John, by the time we get to our passage today, they go to Samaria and are able to bless what is happening. They place their hands on Samaritans to bless and pray for them. That in itself would have been unheard of in that day. They pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And I want to explore this receiving coming of the Holy Spirit that's in this passage. It could be confusing. It'd be easy to misunderstand what's happening here. We see the Samaritans had believed, they had been baptized, and yet the Holy Spirit does not come on them until Peter and John pray in this way. So some have taken this to mean that uh, after believing and being baptized, there's some extra step that people need to take Uh, after coming to Christ in order to really have the Holy Spirit present in their lives. But it's important we never take any one uh, scripture and use it to build a whole theology. And it's important here we don't take this one passage and use it to develop a whole theology of the Holy Spirit and how he works. We need to look at the whole of what the Bible says. And it's clear elsewhere in scripture that the Holy Spirit is present in the life of every believer, fully present. And there are many, many examples in scripture of people who for whom the Holy Spirit is clearly active and present in their lives, but never had any special prayer like the one we see here from Peter and John. So, what is it that's going on here then? Well, this passage represents part two of a larger coming of the Holy Spirit, a particular inaugural coming of the Holy Spirit that takes place throughout Acts to inaugurate the church and launch the church. It's not that the Holy Spirit was absent before this time, but there's a particular manifestation and coming of the Holy Spirit that comes in multiple phases throughout the book of Acts. So phase one is in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, which we looked at several weeks ago, where the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles. It's not that the Holy Spirit wasn't present at all before that time, but at this event, God makes it clear that he was no longer just dwelling in the temple, but was widely available to anyone who would call on him. And that event took place among Jewish people. But now a similar thing is happening among Samaritan people. And later we'll see a similar thing happen when the gospel first goes to Gentile people. It's all part of a unique, multi-phase, inaugural coming of the Holy Spirit that happens throughout Acts. Acts. It's not that the Holy Spirit was absent in Samaria before Peter and John came. We see miracles, we see healing, we see the power of God at work, we see joy, the fruit of the Spirit, we see people coming into relationship with Christ. It's all evidence of the Spirit at work. But this particular coming of the Holy Spirit is an evidence that God uh, is validating what's happening here. God is validating his work among the Samaritans. It's not something the Samaritans have to do extra in this case. It's something that God is doing to enfold the Samaritans into the one church. What's happening here is they're being enfolded into the one church. That They're not just some separate Samaritan thing popping up over here, but it's significant. Peter and John, who had received the first coming of the Holy Spirit, go and bless them, and the Spirit comes upon the Samaritans in a similar way. They're being enfolded into one church. And God is validating that he is, in fact, available, fully available to the Samaritans. They don't have to go to the Jewish temple. They don't have to go to their own temple. He is available to them, and fully pouring himself out for Samaritan people. And he's demonstrating that here. And it's significant that Peter and John go and are a part of this because we see the gospel breaking down barriers between people groups. And really, today, the gospel remains the one true, real hope for real oneness, real reconciliation, where there's fractured relationships between people and cultural groups. And division and hostility really do still exist today. Much as we like to think maybe that's a thing of the past, or we're, we're past that in America, it just takes one episode like the Zimmerman verdict this past week and people's various responses to it to show, well, maybe not all is well. There are still some deep-seated feelings and hurts and divisions in our society, just like there always have been. But this is not just an American problem. This is a human problem. There are very real cross-cultural tensions that have always existed because it's a deep part of our broken, sinful humanity that we have divisions and fractured relationships among people groups. And there is fear of the other, disdain for the other, and fractured relationships. That's been true for all of human history in every part of the world. And there have been various solutions people have come up with to try to deal with this tension throughout history. One is to just avoid the other, kind of the Jewish Samaritan approach. Another has been to eliminate the other. And there have been several gruesome examples of this throughout history. The popular secular solution in the West is to tolerate the other, which is, I think, better than the first two I mentioned But I'll be honest, Uh, I work on college campuses, I have for a long time, where multiculturalism is promoted, and and as it well it should be, but the secular answers and vision in this area, I have to say, I find to be pretty shallow. Pretty kind of a lowest common denominator sort of coming together that glosses over real differences and doesn't have the power to address real hurts, real sin, and real uh, differences that exist between cultures. But the gospel calls us not just to tolerate each other, The gospel calls us to love each other, which is far more costly and hard, but also far more beautiful and compelling. The promise of the gospel goes beyond mere coexistence together to real, actual oneness. That's a much higher vision, and it's only the gospel that makes that possible. Because the gospel can fundamentally change who we are and gives us a new identity, not just as individuals, but a new collective identity Ephesians 2 says that Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between peoples, making two into one. Only he can do that. And I think that's honestly one of the greatest gifts the church has to offer the world, especially in the city. And we see it here, Jews and Samaritans being reconciled and made into one body, really one, in a way they never would have or never could have apart from the gospel, it's a beautiful thing. The Samaritan, everyone's changed too. The Samaritans now have full access to God through Jesus in a way they never did before. And Peter and John also have the, the fulfillment of their own sort of mini conversion process that Jesus had begun working in them. They come away from this. Uh, the end of our passage says Peter and John left and went and proclaimed the gospel in many Samaritan villages. They're clearly convinced that God is fully available to the Samaritans. They would have never thought that before But there now, there's a oneness. The gospel offers that. In Christ, Jews have a new identity. In Christ, Samaritans have a new identity. And for those who are in Christ, they have a new identity together. One body, one church. That's pretty compelling. And it's one of the most awesome things about the gospel. That it breaks down barriers and that it is translatable to every culture and every people group and every language on earth. And this passage here is just a foretaste of things to come. In the book of Acts, as the gospel goes forward and reaches more and more cultures and more and more people groups. Now, that's true. Uh, The gospel is translatable and takes root in every culture on earth. Uh, The gospel is not just there for any culture to take and do whatever the heck it wants to with. Which brings us to our third theme the gospel is clarified. I need to talk about Simon the magician here. He actually gets almost half the ink in this passage clearly something kind of significant. So we'll talk about Simon. It's clear at this point Samaritans are full members of the church. They don't have to become Jewish. They don't have to go to their own temple. They can fully know God as Samaritans. But Simon has a fascinating response to the gospel. It says he believes. He gets baptized. But it's clear there's several ways in which he is missing the mark, missing the message. And this, each of them brings some clarity to what the gospel is, and what the gospel is not. I'll just point out three of those things that I think we can see from this passage. One, we see the gospel is not magic. There's a lot of supernatural miracles and powerful acts being done in this passage of Philip uh, and, and Simon. Philip performs all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles and it's clear Simon actually has some kind of real spiritual power behind him in the, in the sorcery and magic that he's doing. This isn't magic in the sense of like David Blaine or like sleight of hand tricks or optical illusions. Simon is, is calling upon some real spiritual forces here. They're just not of God. And he has some real power. You can tell by the way people are responding to him. Reminds me of, a, uh, in some ways, a friend that Liz and I have who grew up in New Orleans, his name's Myron, and before he became a Christian, as a young man, he practiced voodoo. And Myron will talk about this as he shares his story of coming to faith. Like His experience with voodoo actually had some real spiritual experiences. It's a part of it. Real spiritual power just wasn't of God. And Myron uh, compares his experience with voodoo to a heroin addiction. Well, at first, there was this real high, like a really awesome spiritual high that made him want more and more of it. But over time, you know, at first, he said it was maybe 99% high and 1% kind of uh, trouble and, and uncomfortable things. But over time, he just wanted more and more of that spiritual high, but it became more like 1% high and 99% destruction. And it tore up his home, tore up his life. Uh, before Jesus rescued him from that life. Now, Simon offers some real spiritual power here, but it is power ultimately to destroy lives. It may not be any coincidence that in this village where they uh, kind of sought the spiritual highs that Simon had to offer, there were so many people who were possessed by demons until Philip came and ultimately delivered them in a way that Simon could not. The gospel is not magic, and the Samaritans did not just find their new favorite magician in Philip, who could just do cooler things and offer a better spiritual high than Simon could. What we see here is that the gospel is power and truth. The gospel is power and truth, truth and power. Philip gets their attention through some acts of power, but ultimately, uh, Philip comes to bring a message, not just miracles. Miracles. Philip comes to proclaim the gospel that ultimately can save these people in a way that mere miracles alone can't. Philip performs signs and wonders in just the same way the apostles have up to this point in Acts, to testify to the message about Jesus. Simon performs miracles to bring people to himself and to be kind of a big deal. Philip performs miracles to draw people to the gospel and to Jesus who can save them in ways that mere miracles alone can't do. His proclamation is both word and deed. The gospel is not a magic show. The gospel is not just a succession of spiritual highs and spiritual experiences. The gospel is power and truth. And truth and power. The Samaritans didn't just need more miracles. They needed the truth of the gospel that could really save them. That's true today as well. The gospel is both truth and And power. It's easy to overemphasize one or the other, to go off chasing just spiritual experiences or spiritual highs without them being grounded in the gospel that can save us. Or it could be easy for the gospel to be reduced to ideas and theory without actual deeds to demonstrate the life changing power of the gospel. We need both truth and power. That gets clarified for us here. Secondly, from Simon's example, we can see the gospel is not a means to our own personal ends to our own selfish ends. He seems to treat it that way a little bit. Simon has always been kind of a big shot in town. People thought he was something great. They sang his praises. I mean, that's got to feel good after a while. I mean, Simon was a a big dog. Now all of a sudden people are turning to Christ and they're responding to Philip's ministry. Uh, Simon perhaps sees the opportunity like, oh, well, if I can get that kind of power, maybe I can be even more of a spiritual giant. Maybe I can be even more of a spiritual big shot. He sees the gospel as a means to the end, to fuel his, his own personal ambition. And Peter comes down fairly hard on him for this, very hard on him for this. It's similar the way Peter responds to the way he responded to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, where they, ha- they too had kind of been doing the external appearance of, of being faithful to Jesus without actually having their hearts changed. And Peter calls Simon on this. Your heart is not right before God. Just like in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, Peter's harshness here, I don't think it's as much God's judgment and anger so much as it's God's fierce protection of his church that he loves. He loves and is is zealous for this new community of Samaritan believers, and he doesn't want appearances and, and the things that Simon is infecting into the community to bring them down. The gospel is not a means to our personal ends. And we can treat it that way in all kinds of ways. We can treat Jesus like a means to an end, whether to power or just wealth, happiness, status, prestige, whatever it may be. The gospel is not a means to our personal selfish ends. The gospel is a call to transformation We don't just take all the things we've been pursuing in life up until we know Jesus and translate them into church and then see Jesus as a way to get those things. But Jesus transforms our hearts and transforms our ambitions such that we're not primarily seeking our own gain, our own advancement, our own status, our own power, and hoping Jesus will help us get there. But Jesus is the end in and of himself that we begin to seek and choose as we are transformed by the gospel. Jesus is not a means to ends. Jesus is the end in and of himself. All other ends we pursue, we need to die to. We need to do what Peter says here and repent. If there's any ways we're coming to church looking for it to be the place where we get to be a big shot or have some power or primarily just find ways to feel happy and good uh, over and hope that Jesus is the means to that, we need to repent. He's not a means to our ends. He is the end in and of himself. Simon was pursuing him as a means to an end, which leads to kind of the third thing we can see in him, is that the gospel is not for sale. Simon sees this awesome power of God at work, and oh man, I want that. I got, I got money too. I mean, how much you want for this Holy Spirit? I'll buy it. The gospel is not for sale. One thing Simon's doing here is he seems to be trying to manipulate the power of God, again, for his own selfish ends. Um, oh, like, oh, if I buy it, then I can get the power of God. And we, you know, we would never necessarily do that. But there's all kinds of ways we can try to manipulate the power of God or um, you know, do things so that God's power will, will bless us. You know, well, I read my Bible and pray every day, so therefore God should answer all of my prayers. Or, I tithe faithfully and I give, and therefore, God, I should never have financial hardship. I serve and I do all kinds of good things, so therefore, kinda, it's like a way of trying to get God's power coerced through our own efforts. Peter calls out a fundamental misunderstanding that Simon has about the gospel. He says, may your money perish with you, which is, that's pretty tame, actually. The original Greek is more akin to, to hell with you and your money, Because you thought you could buy the gift of God. The gospel is not for sale. The gospel is a gift. The gospel is a gift. There's no other way to receive it than to receive it as a gift. The gospel and all that comes with it salvation, forgiveness, new life, the Holy Spirit it's all gift of God. And there's no other way to attain it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't um, try to attain it through lots of good works. No matter how many good things you do or awesome deeds, no matter if you have the right uh, frame of mind or ideas about God, you cannot earn the gift of God. You cannot attain the gift of God by any Effort on your own part. The gospel is a gift. And as soon as someone tries to attain it some other way, Peter puts a quick stop to that. This gospel is spreading. It's spreading quickly. And it's important that as that happens, it's clear how you get the favor of God, how you get the power of God, and how you get saved by God. It is a gift. You can't buy it. You can't grab it. You can't earn it. There are all kinds of ways that we try to do that, too. We might know in our heads that the gospel's a gift, it's free of charge, but there's still lots of ways we can strive to earn God's favor, strive to earn God's approval. We believe that we really need to do certain things, put out a certain type of effort to earn God's grace and God's love. And again, we need to turn from those things. The gospel is a gift. If there's any way that you're straining and striving to get right with God, if there's any ways you're trying to get God to like you, if there's any ways you're trying to earn God's favor or pay back some sort of debt you feel like you owe to God, just stop. The gospel is a gift freely given to us and to all people. We see this gift being spread far and wide in this passage. It is a gift. May we be a church, Journey, that knows the gospel, that's rooted in the gospel, that's passionate about the gospel and displays the gospel, knowing that it is not a means to an end, knowing that it's not magic, but it's truth and power, and knowing that it is a gift. And may we be compelled to share that gift as freely as God wants it shared. He broke the early church in Jerusalem out of its inertia. They didn't maybe want to go to Samaria, but God's heart for Samaria broke them loose. May he break us out of any inertia we might fall into for the sake of the city and the people here that he loves so much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible gift of your word. Thank you for so Many things we have to learn from it. I pray for each of us here, you would give us at least one concrete takeaway from this passage. Would you forgive us, Lord, for ways that we use you as a means to our own ends? If there are particular ways we're doing that, Lord, would you bring them to mind and cause us to repent? Forgive us for ways we treat the gospel as just a spiritual high or as just ideas? Would you call us to know both the truth and the power of the gospel? Would you forgive us, Lord, of any ways that we are trying to attain your favor? And again, if there are particular ways we're doing that, Lord, would you make those clear so that we can turn and receive your gift in our lives? And Father, would you root and ground this church further and further in the gospel and the truth and power of it. And would you compel us, Lord, to share that gift far and wide with the world who so desperately needs it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.